Father, thank You for Your provision and Your protection over this church. Thank You for blessing us with the opportunity yesterday to minister to those who are marginalized in our city. For using them, God, to minister to us. I remember Tommy said the first lady we spoke to prayed for me. We were so caught up in the belief that we were going to go down and change them. And Father, our experience with them changed us. I pray that your spirit would continue to move in our midst today as you change us. As we assess what it is that your word has to teach us. We want to know you, God. We want to be in right relationship with you. We want to understand your character and your nature. We want to love you, Father. So be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so the text for today comes to us from the book of Ruth because we're in a a study on Ruth. For this entire series, we're going to use the NASB translation that came to us from 1995. Brent, I knew you'd be excited about using the NASB. I'm I'm an ESV guy. Tommy's an NET guy. Some of us read the NLT. We're a mixed bag of people here. And so we're not just going to do what Matt prefers. We're going to do what each of us may prefer as we continue to explore the, the, uh, the library of Scripture. So starting in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. In the opening of his commentary on the book of Ruth, biblical scholar Robert L. Hubbard begins his verse-by-verse breakdown on chapter 1 with this statement. Listen to this statement. It is with brief, careful strokes that the storyteller sketched the background for his story. He locates it chronologically in the days when the judges ruled, evidently a well-known era to the original audience, thus implying that many years had passed between the story from him and his audience. Now when we hear or when we read an opening statement such as this, it forces us to ask two questions. Allow me to reread the statement and then I'll pose question one. It is with brief, careful strokes that the storyteller sketched the background for his story. He locates it chronologically in the days when the judges ruled. Evidently, this was a well-known era to the original audience, thus implying that many years had passed between the story from him and his audience. 
So this is probably going to be an easier question for those who were here last week to answer, unless you're familiar with the story. But does it sound like he's proposing a pre-exilic or a post-exilic date for the book in its final form? Post? Pre? It's kind of ambiguous, right? What does he mean when he says, many years have passed? He doesn't tell us. But when you read the commentary... He says that a case for the pre-exilic dates enjoys a slight edge on the case for the post-exilic dates. But when you read the statement, you're like, whoa, wait a second. What are you trying to tell me here? <laughs> how am I supposed to think, right? We want to be told how to think instead of thinking for ourselves. And I want to discourage that. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. So we need to learn to think and we should think together. And we should talk about what we think. And we should drill deep. Okay, let's put the next slide up. I want you guys to read this out loud for me, please. Okay, question number two. Based on this statement that we're looking at, can anyone identify which of the theories Hubbard seems to reject that we talked about last week in regard to potential authors? Boom. He does. Put the next slide up. Art, excellent eye. All male pronouns for the narrator or for the author. However... <laughs> I love, this, I love this guy's writings, right? On page, let me see here. I didn't know if anybody was going to get it, so I had a little explanation written out here. Right, on page 24 of his commentary, he argues that a female could be responsible for the authorship, proposing a daughter like Tamar from King David, proposing that women might have originated the, in, with the oral tradition. Women could be responsible for the oral tradition. On page, 20, on page 24, he writes this. First, the story is obviously about two women in dire straits. Two women living in a society that was dominated by men. And yet this story seems to reflect a female perspective, he says. And then he goes on to write, it is female assertiveness which drives the story's actions. Russ, Jane, we were talking about this this morning. The initiative of the women is all over the pages of the text. Hubbard says, the credit in Ruth for the ultimate success belongs mainly to the initiative of both Ruth and Naomi. Then he goes on to ask this question. When did this very gifted, anonymous author write her, or his, in quotes, composition? Now, why do we bring this up on a Sunday morning? Because this is how one studies the Bible. This is how one reads the Bible. This is how one observes what's going on in the text and then asks questions about what they read. We embrace scholarship. It teaches us that general language is acceptable when speaking and when writing. 
Simultaneously, it teaches us that theories such as these are not hills that we need to die on. How could you believe a woman is responsible for writing Scripture? It's so clear in history that Israel put no value on educating women in the ancient Near East. They knew how to speak. Maybe they were responsible for the origin of the story. And maybe the story was then grown, and over time it was authored by a male scribe. The fact of the matter is we don't know who wrote the story. So you can't definitively tell me that it was a man and it was not a woman because we don't know who wrote it. So the, 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 the theories are on the table. And we want to talk about it because it matters. It matters what we think and it matters why we think it. Why do we believe what we believe? Why is Jesus king? We better learn how to think. We've already touched on two points from last week's sermon. We're like three or four minutes into the sermon. We've already recapped and touched on two points that we touched on. And then I had you guys do an exercise without telling you that's what you were doing on how to make observations by having you read something and then you tell me what you see. This is how we study the Bible. We make observations. We write them down. We share them. We tell each other why we think these things are key. If we're not doing this, we should begin to do this. This is how we gain a deeper understanding of the text of Scripture. Now, as we prepare to focus our attention back on the text, we need to remind ourselves that in ancient Hebrew narrative, just about every word is vital. Yes, every word is vital. It's vital to the one who hears and it's vital to the one who reads the story. And every sentence is worth pondering. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Can you guys read this out loud for me, please? Every word. It's important. Every sentence worth pondering. Now we've already mentioned that the setting for the story takes place during the era of the judges. This is a time frame in world civilization that unfolded sometime between 1220 and 1030 BC. We know this to be true. Archaeology can substantiate this claim. As modern readers of the text, we need to understand that the function of verse 1, what we're looking at, is to introduce the family it introduces us to a family who's experiencing tragedy. These are real people living in a real place. Which means that all of the events in the narrative that we read are true to human history. Can anyone identify the tragedy for me? What is that? It's a famine. Historically speaking, the events of the book were activated by a famine which had apparently devastated the entire land of Israel. Now we have to answer another question. Why is the land of promise, which had previously been described as a land flowing with milk and honey, now dried up and desolate? What's going on in Israel? Well, let's look at two potential reasons. 
Leviticus 26 teaches us, and if, in spite of all of this, you still disobey me, if you disobey me, if you fail to maintain or keep the covenant, I will punish you seven times over for your sins. I will break your proud spirit by making the skies as unyielding as iron and the earth as hard as bronze. All of your work will be for nothing, for your land will yield no crops, famine, and your trees will bear no fruit. Deuteronomy 28 recapitulates the same thing. It flips bronze and iron from the sky to the ground. And then it says that the Lord will change the rain that falls to powder until we're destroyed. It appears that the nation of Israel may be suffering. They may be suffering these consequences for disobedience. Like we just read, if Israel were found to be in violation of the covenant agreement, remember, they voluntarily, they voluntarily entered into this covenant agreement with God. If they were found to be in violation, God would strike the land with a lack of rain. No rain, no crops, no crops. Famine. Tragedy. Wait a second. Is it just me? We just read the first five verses in the book of Ruth. Did anybody read anything about Israel's individual or corporate disobedience? I didn't see it. Did you? Yeah. So it's not there. Ah. The setting of the story. When was, when was the story set? During the time of the judges. So what does the Bible teach us about what life looked like during the time of the judges? Well, let's see. Starting very early on in Judges, let's do the next slide. Starting in chapter 2, we read, after Joshua, now remember, Joshua replaced Moses. After Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them post-conquest. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Next slide. After that, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord. They did not remember the mighty things He had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. Now, this is the close of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Israel acknowledges a lack of a human monarchy. They also disavow the kingship of Yahweh through the exchange and worship of other gods. So basically, from start to finish, it's not looking good for the nation of Israel in the book of Judges. <laughs> now we need to be clear here, these are only potential reasons for the famine. It's what we might call textual speculation. We're speculating on why the land might be in famine. Robert Christholm states that even though this period of time in Israel's history was significantly dark, the reference to the famine 
may not dictate an act of divine discipline or judgment. He reminds us, the narrator does not point to God as the cause of the famine. He doesn't. He also says that when you read Judges, and I would encourage you, go read Judges this week. Do it. Read the whole book. Get up early one morning and just blast through it. Don't make any notes. Don't make any observations. Just read the book. And you'll find that the narrator in the book of Judges and all of the experiences in the book of Judges will never once see that famine was the source of divine judgment. Not once. So we can't definitively say that God is punishing Israel with a famine due to their disobedience. It's textual speculation. It's also worth noting that in the Old Testament, famines have been presented in a neutral light. Read Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, 26, 1, or chapter 41, 14 through 36, and you'll see famines in the land that are presented in a neutral light. So it's safe to say that this famine in the book of Ruth raises all kinds of questions for us. Was it really a punishment from God? Maybe. Was it the result of agricultural mismanagement? That could happen. Maybe it was connected to the enemy's activity in the land. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, they're always being attacked. Whatever the cause, it's our responsibility to recognize that the purpose of the book of Ruth is not to give us an answer. In reality, the famine accomplishes one thing. It provides us with the reason why this Hebrew family decided to leave Bethlehem and Judah. That's all the famine teaches us. It was because there was a famine in the land that Elimelech and his family decided to move. They were going to seek refuge elsewhere. All of that data packed into one short verse just 42 words in the English language. It's an example of why we need to move slowly through the text of Scripture when we study it. Because we have so much to learn historically and culturally if we really want to grasp what God is trying to teach us. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Okay. This is where irony, irony surfaces in the narrative. Does everybody know what irony is? You ever heard the song, isn't it ironic? <laughs> irony. Yeah, the Bible includes irony in its narrative. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Long time ago, I got to teach the Garness kids about Ruth for a bedtime story. And all, I think all they could remember was like, it's the house of bread. It's the house of bread. <laughs> and it's ironic that the house of bread fails to feed Elimelech and his family. That's irony. 
<laughs> On top of that, Elimelech and his family go to Moab. <laughs> Moab is one of the two nations which refused both bread and water to their ancestors as they traveled from Egypt to the land of Canaan. No Amorite or Moabite or any of their descendants for ten generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. These nations did not welcome you with food and water when you came out of Egypt. So he leaves the house of bread and he goes to the nation that starved his people. It's irony. Isn't it ironic? Is there anything else that's slipping past us that we're missing because it's cloaked in irony? Let's take a look at the list of names in verse 2. You know what? Let's start with the expression Ephrathites in Bethlehem in Judea in Judah and then we'll tackle the names. So what is Ephrathites? And that's a question we should all be asking. Ephrathites is most likely a way of identifying one's clan within the tribe. So we're talking about the tribe of Judah and it's made up of a bunch of different clans of people. We're reading through numbers right now with the church reading plan. And if you're reading numbers, you're getting the breakdown of the clans within the tribes and what they do. It's like a God thing that this whole thing came together because Tommy and I are not smart enough to plan something like this. <laughs> Maybe Brent, but not us. <laughs> hey now. <laughs> it's like you got the clan in the bullseye, then you got, you know, like... The families that composed the clan. Then you got the tribe of Judah working its way outward. Now this is a vital detail. Why is this a vital detail? It's a vital detail because it associates Elimelech's family line with King David, who we discover in the end of chapter 4. And King David in 1 Samuel verse 7, uh, chapter 17, verse 12 is described as the son of of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Oh. It's almost like this story may have a motif of kingship embedded in it. Just maybe. Call me crazy. It may have slipped past us in our initial reading because we're separated from the text by thousands of years. Language, culture, geography. So it may have slipped past us. But to the original audience, this would have been their first clue. That the, whoever tells and whoever hears the story of Ruth should recognize it and its association with Israel's kingship. Since we're on the topic of kingship, let's talk about Elimelech's name. Elimelech means my God is king. Or God is king. Or Yahweh my God is king. Now given the current circumstances, is it just me? Or is it kind of strange that the one named my God is king flees from the territory of his king in the face of a famine? That's ironic. I bet his parents had bigger aspirations for him when they named him on the eighth day than being the guy who would flee in the face of some catastrophe. You're supposed to have faith in Yahweh. It's what your name means. And you leave him in the promised land. Come on, bro. Irony in the text. What about Naomi's name? 
And we don't know definitively, but it could mean pleasant or agreeable. And in English, it could be rendered my joy or my pleasant one. This also seems very strange if we think about how she responds to the women in Bethlehem in the close of chapter 1, where she is anything but pleasant. Anything but pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Lord has turned his face against me. Doesn't sound like a pleasant woman. You know, if someone was walking down the road and you're like, I think I know that person. Yo, hey, what's up? And that's how she responded to you. You'd be like, crazy. Is that smoking crack now or something? Like, somebody pray for that woman. Far from pleasant. Malon, Kilion. Daniel Block associates these names with descriptions like to be sick or to come to an end, which implies frailty and mortality. Is anyone else seeing the pattern here? <laughs> it's almost like these are given names, a sort of wordplay functioning like omens for what's about to happen. I can hear Jen. She's like, yep, read the story with y'all last week. I know what's coming. Can you guys read this one for me? Try to imagine. Try to imagine what it must have been like to be Naomi. You're far from your homeland, separated from your family, the family you traveled with. The patriarch has just died, your best friend and partner. Her whole world changed in an instant. It's like a freight train out of nowhere. Her whole world is now in chaos. The storyteller has turned everything on its head. There's a transfer of roles, and we need to do a close reading to see this. And this transfer of roles would have silenced the original audience, leaving them dumbfounded. Naomi is no longer Elimelech's wife. He is now her husband. It's a small detail, but it's important. He is now her husband. In a patriarchal society, this type of statement would have been a rarity indeed. You don't describe the man as belonging to the woman. You describe the woman as belonging to the man. What are you thinking, storyteller? It doesn't stop there. <laughs> Notice that the sons were no longer his children. They're now her children. And it's so Western to just be like, obviously it's because he died. <laughs> no, stupid. <laughs> it's not because he died. It's to grasp the attention of the audience. This would have silenced them. What a disgrace! <laughs> I hope... I'm never described as the husband of this woman. I hope she's always described as my wife. That's what would be happening in the mind of all of the men in the original audience. What a disgrace. The children would be like, oh, Dad's mad. 
<laughs> Any expectation of positive outcome. Any expectation of a positive outcome in connection with their move to Moab has been dashed to pieces with the death of the patriarch Elimelech. Phyllis Tribal writes, where famine shattered unity between man and land, now death destroys harmony between man and woman. It's intense. The hearer and the reader are left spellbound by the narrator's lack of sensitivity. When we hear a story like this, we're like, come on, give me the details. What do you mean he died? How long was he in the land before he died? How did he die? Why did he die? What did Naomi feel like? Tell me the details. It's almost like we don't tell stories like this anymore. We're so detail-oriented that we lose sight of what's important when we skip over what's being said. Spellbound. I'm reading this story and I'm like, what is going on? And it's at this point in the story that the author's brevity, it's here where he successfully gripped my heart and it's where he captured my mind as I was wondering what is going on in the hearts and minds of the characters in the story. How does Naomi feel? What are her sons thinking? I've experienced loss. I've experienced trauma. I've experienced grief. Maybe, just maybe, they felt the way I feel sometimes. Could it be true? Man, I hope so. It would make them so much more relatable. Naomi was left. It's an important term. She was left in the foreign land of Moab. Was Israel's God punishing them? Some individuals seem to think so, yet it appears to be an intentional part of the author's artistry to leave any and all judgments against Elimelech and what he's decided to do in the hands of the audience. And it's with this, right? It's with the famine. It's with the death of Elimelech. And it's going to be with the death of Malon and Kilion that all we're left to do is speculate because the narrator tells us nothing about the background, the motivations, or why. James McNoan observes that the text is frequently ambiguous about the motivation of the characters. So as tempting as it may be to turn them into our own pet projects, I'll tell you what, Na what Naomi did wrong. I'll tell you what Elimelech did wrong. I'll tell you why the sons died. I know. Instead of doing that, he says we should just let the text speak for itself. Ultimately, it's our job to work with the data we've been given. It's our best bet. It's what it means to be text-driven. You can't be a text-driven person if you veer from the text. Remember, theories are good because theories make us think, but our theories need to be grounded in the Word of God. Can you guys read this next slide for me?
Has anybody ever heard the Latin phrase, post tenebras lux? No? No? Me neither. I just asked if you heard it. I just asked if you heard it. <laughs> this was the ethos of the Reformation in the Protestant move. Post tenebras lux. But in reading Ruth, I'm asking myself, maybe it's possible that this statement, post tenebras lux, which we find in the Latin existed, long before Rome took over the world. It means, after darkness, light. Imagine living through the end of the medieval age and getting to participate in the Reformation. After darkness, light. Now, if we think about post-Tenebras Lux, could it be that after the death of Elimelech, the life of Naomi was connected to the idea of finding comfort in the, poten in the potential of future offspring? Grandbabies do bring joy to the heart of grandparents, don't they? Amen. Amen. It's in verse 4 that we learn that both Malon and Kilion marry Moabite women. And then in verse 5, they're dead. <laughs> At this point, all I feel is hopelessness. Do we attach our hearts to the text when we read it? Do we ask ourselves questions like, do I even care that these people suffered? Because if I don't care that they suffered, why should I anticipate that someone would care when I suffer? This is the ancestral line of our Messiah, Jesus. Do we care what His family experienced? We should. Where is God in all of this that's going on? Am I, are we missing something? How am I supposed to feel about the choices Naomi's son made? Do we approve of mixed marriages? Are we supposed to disapprove? And how am I supposed to know because the storyteller is silent on all of it? All he tells me is this is the people, dead. This is the people, dead. What? I'm a detail guy. I want to know how am I supposed to feel? And I'm sure that one could argue that the Torah expressly forbids. Oh yeah, man, Mosaic Law forbids any Israelite from entering into the covenant of marriage with a pagan people from a pagan nation. And the Moabites were definitely pagan. The Bible says they were the people of Chemosh. So they must have been idol worshipers. Okay, well, let's see what the Bible has to say. Can we go to the next slide? When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are about to enter and occupy, He will clear away many nations ahead of you. The Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. These seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry. Mosaic legislation. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. How do you know that, Matt? Go read about Solomon, who married a bunch of foreign women, who worshiped a bunch of foreign gods. And in the end, Solomon died not fearing God, but worshiping 
idols. The anger of the Lord burned against them for their idolatry. Let's talk about Elimelech, right? What a lack of faith. We mentioned it when we brought up his name. Shouldn't he have just stayed in Bethlehem? That would have been the smart thing to do, right? And when he died in Moab, if his sons were faithful Israelites, they would have definitely taken their mom and returned to Judah. I don't know. Let's see. What's the next side? But if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overwhelm you. Okay, well what kind of curses are we talking about? Your fields will be cursed. Oh, okay. Famine. Next slide. Your children will be cursed. Oh. Well, wherever you go, whatever you do, you will be cursed. Whether in Bethlehem or in Moab, whatever you do, I'm going to get you. The Lord Himself will send on you curses. Confusion. You think Naomi was confused? I think so. And frustration. You think the sons were frustrated that they had left their inheritance behind and were now in a foreign land where they were probably entitled to nothing until you are at last completely destroyed for doing evil and abandoning me. See? Elimelech should have stayed in in Judea. Elimelech should have never left Bethlehem, right? He abandoned God by turning his back on him, and this is evidenced in the fact that he left the promised land and fled to Moab. And what's the deal with the children? Ten years. They're married for ten years. We know they're having sex. There's no birth control. You're telling me there's no kids after ten years? Maybe God cursed the boys with sterility because they weren't faithful Israelites. Are any of these things true? Has the narrator told us that any of these things are true? Maybe all of this just falls under the principle of what goes without saying. Like the original audience would have known the Mosaic legislation. They would have known Israel's history and they would have made correlations. This is why God's punishing them. Except for one thing. It's not in the book of Ruth! (laughs) But Matt, shouldn't we at least consider everything that we just read? Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. I can't tell you how to think. You have to learn to think for yourself. Consider this. What if the backdrop to Elimelech's move was grounded in the reality that in Genesis, both Abraham and Jacob left the land due to famine? And when they left, God blessed them. Abraham left and he was gifted with lots from the Pharaoh. Abimelech. And it says that when uh, Jacob goes down, in Egypt I will make you a great nation. So what if Elimelech is not using the Torah as the backdrop, but he's using the move of the patriarchs as as his backdrop. And he's like, look Naomi, we got to go. Abraham went, Jacob went, and God blessed them. He might bless us. There's no food here. There's no hope here. We can go. Our forefathers went. Let's walk in their footsteps. 
Maybe it was Genesis that was on the heart of Elimelech. Not the law. Who knows? We should also consider the sensible decision that Elimelech had to make on the behalf of his family. He must have assessed that Moab is a whole lot closer than Egypt. I'll move my family to Moab. And in light of what the book of Judges teaches us in chapter 3, verse 15 through 30, which was part of the homework from last week, we learn that Ehud defeated King Eglon and led Israel in victory over Moab. And in consideration of this, it was probably safer to travel to Moab. All of this stuff is important. If we don't know this, we can't say we know the story of Ruth. This is their lives we're talking about here. Their very lives. And they're on the line. And death is ravaging their family. In consideration of Malon and Kilion, we should attempt to see Deuteronomy 7 as a bad passage to try to prove that their marriages were somehow in violation to Torah. Moab was not listed in that seven-nation list. And finally, for those in the post-exilic camp who like to argue that Nehemiah and Ezra forbade such marriages with foreigners, please remember that Esther is, in the book of, is a book in the Bible. And please remember that Esther was not prohibited, uh, prohibited by Ezra and Nehemiah. And she was most likely not prohibited by Ezra and Nehemiah's uh, of law that there must be a mass divorce of any foreigner in the land of Israel. Why? Because she was living in a foreign land. So were Malon and Kilion. <laughs> they were in Moab when they got married. So don't just try to throw the law out there and be like, I know why God punished these people. Because in reality, we don't. And the narrator says nothing. When we choose to deal with the whole of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, things aren't as black and white as we want them to be. They're just not. <laughs> I don't get to proof text my way through the Bible so I can make my claim and tell someone, you're wrong, I'm right, and here's why you're wrong. It's not as black and white as we want it to be. You don't know the heart of Elimelech. I don't know the heart of Elimelech. And when he was suffering, he did what he thought was so vital. When we are suffering, we do what we think is best. This is why the grace of God is so vital. We need the grace of God because we're fallible human beings. We need the grace of one another so that when a mistake is made, we can say it doesn't matter. I expected you to do a whole lot worse. <laughs> Praise God that you didn't. And we can reconcile this now. Hallelujah. It's about relationship. I don't want to be polarized from people. I want to love God and I want to love people. Period. That's it. Hate consumes and costs me too much energy. N.T. Wright says, do not armchair quarterback the decisions of historical icons. He says you can't psychoanalyze the dead. 
so don't try. I love it. A little bit of logic goes a long way. We must remember that it's our job to work with the data we've been given. We work with the data we've been given. Why? Because we want to be a text-driven people. Period. I want to love God. I want to love people. And the best way to do that is to search His natural revelation and to spend time in His special revelation, His written word. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, we discovered an expository opening act which provided the required backdrop for the story. In verse 3 through 5, we come to understand that as human beings, our choices, whatever they may be, have consequences. Just let that sit there for a minute. All of our choices have consequences. Anybody in here, raise your hand if you're responsible for raising a child. Yeah. Your choices will have consequences. Raise your hand if you're responsible for employees at work. You will have consequences for your choices. Raise your hand if you claim to love the Lord your God. You will be held responsible for all of your choices. The book of Ruth launches with an account of unexplained tragedies that come in rapid-fire succession. The absence of any explanation in the book of Ruth as to why a family like this should suffer so much is one of its greatest strengths because it helps us when we read it to realize that people then experience the same things as people now. And like Naomi, we don't always have the answers for it. What's going on? Why? Why, God? First it was the famine, and then it was death. Naomi was left stunned and without answers. And this is the impression that the narrator leaves us with. This is what we should understand. We have no answers. It's not a place that we like to be mentally in the 21st century. I want to know the answer to everything. Google. What's the answer? People are going to think I'm stupid if I don't have the answer. There's a whole lot of stuff that we have to get comfortable with not knowing. And part of it is the plan of God. Because His ways are higher than ours. And His thoughts transcend ours. In the opening of the book of Ruth, it's ironic that Moab, the provider of seed for survival when Bethlehem was barren, proves to be the scene of human barrenness. More irony. With no seed to carry on the family name, Naomi's clan hovers precariously on the brink of extinction, a fate worse than death itself. In the ancient Near East and in Israelite thought process, there is no greater fear than to cease to exist in the land of the living. To have no legacy was the greatest threat to anyone living in the ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian background. The metaphoric remnant of Israel 
has dwindled to a lone woman. And now Naomi must choose for herself the path to survival. I'm just going to get honest with you guys. I believe it's a work of God that we're currently studying this book right now. This is not Matt's idea to study this. It was God's Spirit who prompted me to want to study this with you. I could say that confidently. It's not like I had a feeling. I didn't have a feeling. I had a prompting while I, someone was guiding me. I could name eight families right now, most of them in this room, who over the last six weeks experienced the loss of life. I can do it. If we go back 12 weeks, we could make it 10 or 12 families. And of the eight, on my mind, I can name the people. The sad thing is, all of these people's deaths were just as unexpected as those who died in the story that we just read in the book of Ruth. People in this family are grieving. This is my list. You all have yours. Exponential growth in a moment if everyone writes down the names of everyone they know who died in the last eight weeks. It's a huge loss. We haven't even considered those who are sick and on lockdown. The list grows. Anxiety, depression, self-harm, spousal abuse, child abuse, sexual assault. All of it. God, where are you? Life is not easy and we're not going to pretend that it's easy and I'm not going to stand here and tell you if you put your faith in Jesus, your life is going to get easy. I'm not going to do that. That would be a bold-faced lie. Life is difficult. Jesus offers hope and peace. He doesn't guarantee ease. Naomi felt all of this, just like some of us are feeling it. Our hearts will break, and they will break again, and again, and again, and again, because we live in a fallen world. So it's not about having all of the answers. It's not about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. And it's not about maintaining your game face, bro. It's not about that. It's about knowing and understanding that no matter what we experience in this life, grief, pain, loss, sorrow, all of it, we cannot escape. We can't. I came to church to be encouraged. We're just dealing with the Bible. You're supposed to make me feel good. <laughs> just, just dealing with the Bible. I'm never coming back here ever again. I don't know what to say. 
We're doing our best. And that's all that we can do. This is why the book of Ruth is so vital to the lifeblood of our family at AC Squared. Because in the midst of tragedy, we know and we believe that even when we don't feel God's presence, He is here and He is near. When we lack understanding of why things are going the way that they are in this community, it's this body of spirit-filled believers that functions as a safety net for those in need. A celebration of life for those who have gone on to be with the Lord. Delivering diapers to a young mother who's in need. An opportunity to clothe the needy before winter sets in. A time of prayer over one another, regardless of being present or apart. Funding for those who desire to take the gospel abroad at great risk to themselves. The list goes on and on and on. This is the best we can do. And we will boast in it because we want to boast in what we do for the Lord. We're not going to boast in it because we think we're better. We're going to boast in it because we believe that this is what God has called us to do. And by boasting in it, we will spur one another on to more good works. In this home, we desire to embody chesed. Everybody remember the word chesed from last week? At AC Squared, it's our goal to live a life dominated by other-centered theology. We know and believe that our Redeemer lives, just like the song. And it's because He lives that we can face tomorrow. It's because He lives that we can prop one another up in our times of need. And we know that we won't do it perfectly. We know that mistakes are going to be made. No different from the family that we just read about in the book of Ruth. <laughs> but in the end, we as a family must hold fast to the reality that nothing can come between Emmanuel and those who belong to Him. He is God with us. Our ever-present help in time of need. When one of us, and it will happen, when one of us forgets, when one of us doubts because of what life's circumstances is dealing us, we will be faithful to God as we remind each other that He is still seated on the throne, that He hasn't forgotten us, and most importantly, He is faithful even when we feel like He's nowhere to be found. He is God. We are not. He is faithful. We are not. He is seated on the throne, reigning and ruling. We are not. We are ever dependent on Him, the giver of life and breath. To know Him and to be known by Him is enough. Yes, Lord, it's enough. Come whatever may. It's enough. So let's make the commitment to remain loyal, to demonstrate chesed, to love God and to love people no matter what. Amen? I'm going to pray and then we're going to close with a song. We're going to do Jesus Christ our living hope. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for this story. 
Because in this story you reveal that no matter what we feel, you are present. You are Emmanuel, God with us. You are not far off. If anyone is far off, Lord, it is us. But you are near and dear. You are the one who binds up the brokenhearted. You are the one who sets the captive free. You are the antidote to the chaos in this world. And all of it is a free gift of grace that we obtain through faith in Jesus. So Father, I pray that we would not lose sight of the fact that You are seated on the throne and that You are for us and that You are not against us. That You are with us and that ultimately, in the end, we are not responsible because You will return. And when You return, You will restore order. You will judge all things. and you will...